We are in a series called Unhelpful, and what we've been looking at in this series are all the things we say or that get said to us in really bad moments and difficult moments. Maybe we're struggling, we're suffering, we're hurting, we're grieving, and people say things to us that actually are the opposite. It's well-intended, of course, well-intended, but in the end, it actually just hurts more than it helps. And this week, I want to talk about grief. I want to talk about how for lots of us, our faith tradition taught us way more about how to be judgmental than how to grieve well. Our faith taught us way more about how to be certain we're right and they're wrong, but it didn't tell us, like, what do we do with our pain? Because the thing that is true across the board for every human being, regardless of where you live or how you vote or what your religion is or whatever, the, the thing that unites all of humanity is that we all have something to grieve. We all experience pain. We all experience hurt. And the problem with our tradition in grieving hit me very early on. I, I started preaching when I was around 16. I had my first church job when I was 19. I was the interim pastor of my home church for a little while. And I'll never forget, during that 19 years old, who, who put me in charge of anything? <laughs> that seems sketch at 40. Like, at 19, what were these people thinking? Um, and I remember somebody in our church, it was one of our leaders, one of our volunteers, he, uh, his, he had a family member, I think it was his grandmother passed away, and they were really, really close. And he, he went away to the funeral and he came back, and I ran into him on that Sunday when he came back, and I just said something like, I'm so sorry, I heard about your loss, I'm really sorry. And his immediate response to me was, oh, no, 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 don't be sorry. She's with God now. I can't be sad, that would be selfish. I, I, I can't be sad. She's happy, she's with God, she's celebrating so I, I, don't, I can't be sad. I'm just celebrating for her. And at 19, I thought, that, that doesn't seem healthy. That, that actually doesn't seem human to not grieve. Because I'd been through loss. I'd lost people I cared about. And like, I, I knew that, that the thing I had to do was like, do something with it, right? And I just remember thinking, like, is this what we're teaching people in this tradition? Are we teaching people how not to grieve? Has faith in some ways blocked our grief instead of helping us process it in a healthy and meaningful way? Um, and I think for lots of people, sadness and grief it is associated with a lack of faith. Well, if I just believed more, if I just had more faith, and if I just held on to certainty more, if I just had enough faith, then I wouldn't be sad about this. Then I would be celebrating that this person is, is with Jesus and all of that. Like if I had more faith. Has anybody ever been in that situation where you're struggling and, and what people end up saying to you in a roundabout way is, well, if you just believed more, if you just had a little bit more faith. So why is it we have a grief problem in the Christian faith? Where does it come from? I, I, don't, I don't actually know. I'm just going to throw some guesses around. Is that okay? Um, which is uh, kind of what I do every week. Like, I'm just throwing some educated guesses around about these things. And I, I think it has something to do with the shift of our tradition from the, the sort of the, the cradle and the womb of Judaism in Palestine and Judea into the Greco-Roman world. And here's what I mean. Christianity did not exist in the beginning. It was people who were Jewish who were following Jesus. Eventually, the faith tradition began to spread, and it went into the Greco-Roman world. And when it did, it started encountering other ideas. And it started, people started accepting this religion. And when they did, they were importing some of their own ideas. And one of the things that was a belief in Greco-Roman philosophy, and this is still now a Christian belief in lots of Christian denominations and teaching today, they had this idea that God is impassable. 
Is that word familiar to anybody, impassable? It sounds like what I encountered on the interstate this morning, which is people going slow in both lanes of traffic and they were impassable. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what it means. Like, you can't get around them. Um, impassable, essentially, it literally means without passion. And it's this idea that God doesn't experience emotion. That God is, like, steady all the time. That God doesn't suffer in any way. That God doesn't look at the suffering of the world and feel a thing about it. That you can't, like, God's sort of center can't be changed. God looks at what's going on in the world and has just kind of no feeling about it. That, that, that's just how God is. God can't be moved by what's happening in the world. And I think what ultimately that, that is a remnant of is this idea that we, we shape our gods and then our gods shape us, right? And I think that's some of what's going on here. We, there, there was a value in the Greco-Roman world, a little bit of like you just, you know, to be a really strong person, you're not moved by these things. And so you cast that out into the skies, into the heavens, and you say, this is what God is like. The problem with that is we end up with a God that is disconnected, cold, and distant. How can a God that is disconnected, cold, and distant love? Much less, how can that God be love? How can a God that is disconnected, cold, and, di and distant, how can this God look at the suffering of the world and have compassion? Because God's over here somewhere, and God doesn't feel a thing. God looks at what's going on in the world. God sees the suffering in the world, and God just isn't moved by it. I think part of this is the desire to make God something other than human. And I want to introduce a phrase that I think has probably never been, maybe never been introduced before, but I think what we're seeing in this, this idea, impassibility, is the dehumanization of God. Because we're so desperate. We, 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 human is bad. And what we need is something other than human. And so any human characteristic in the divine, we want to pull that away and make God something other than us because we're rotten and we're no good and we can't be trusted. And so God needs none of our qualities. Instead of thinking maybe that some of those qualities actually come to us from the divine. Maybe part of what it means to be made in God's image is to feel. Maybe part of what it means to be made in God's image is to have compassion. Maybe part of what it means to be made in God's image is to love. And instead we've said, oh, well, actually, God is impassable. God can't be moved. And, and the only problem with that is, and the only problem with lots and lots of doctrines that end up being created is, even if you just go to the scriptures, they fall apart pretty quickly. One of my favorite texts is in Exodus chapter 3. It's when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses slips off his shoes because the ground is holy. And God says something to Moses. The Lord said, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out to a land, uh, to that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey. Right? What, what does this text say? God heard the cry. And what is God's response? Not impassibility. Not, well, it seems like you've gotten, you're, you're in a bad spot. I hope, hope something changes with that. God hears the cry, and God is moved in compassion to act in the world. Throughout Scripture, we find God being described as compassionate. We find God experiencing grief. We even find God longing in the Scriptures. One of the most beautiful images in the Bible is, and by the way, the word compassion in the Hebrew actually can be translated womb-like. And one of the most profound, beautiful moments in Scripture is when God, through the prophet, says something like, 
as a mother longs to swaddle and cuddle and care and hold close her child, so I long for that with you. What if God feels? And what if God does something in response to that feeling? See, I, I think the Bible actually invites us to feel our feelings. And one of the clearest examples of that is a book called Lamentations. How many of you have ever read the book of Lamentations? Okay, if you haven't and you're in a good mood, don't. It will derail your day. Because here's, how, here's, here's what happens. The book of Lamentations is essentially just a collection, and, and most scholars think it actually wasn't written by one person, that there are these five poems that were sort of existing, and they got brought together in a collection. And they're written after the Babylonians came through and destroyed everything. They destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. Life as they knew it had ended, and the book of Lamentations is written in response to that. I want to read you just, if you're in a good mood, you can tune this out. I want to, I want to read you just a little bit of how Lamentations begins. And the first chapter is essentially about the city of Jerusalem. And here's how it begins. How lonely sits the city that was once full of people. How like a widow she has become. She that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a, a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard service. She lives now among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her It's like this entire book is just recycling what has just happened and that nobody came to rescue her. The enemy came and all the allies scattered. And these poets are trying to capture the pain of this. The Book of Lamentations is recited annually on a day known as Tisha B'Av. And Tisha B'Av essentially happens in July or August, and it's mourning the destruction of the temple. Um, and it actually, tradition says that the temple was destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians, and then in 70 CE by the Romans on the same day. Now, I, I, I don't know how true that is, but it's the tradition. And so on this day, they recite the Book of Lamentations as a way of lamenting the past and what has been lost. We also have in the Psalms, in the Bible, the famous Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harp. There our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. How can we sing songs of joy in a foreign land? Our scriptures are full of invitations to grieve. If you read the Psalms, the songbook in the Bible, you'll find that there are songs that essentially are calling God out. Where are you? You didn't show up like you said you would, like we expected you to. Where'd you go? Why have you abandoned us? Has anybody in here ever felt that way? And you, like, do I have permission to say those kinds of things to the divine? Well, our ancestors did. They shook their fist at the heavens and they wept bitter tears. And it wasn't a lack of faith that they were exhibiting. It was actually beautiful faith. And then there's Jesus. You've heard of him. Um, and in Jesus, there's this idea, Christians talk about this idea of incarnation, right? Jesus is the divine in flesh, in skin. Now, here's the good news. Jesus is not the exception. Jesus is the rule. 
And so what Jesus, I think, came in part to, to show us is that what he was up to in the world and what he was doing is the invitation we've all been given. So you are an incarnation. You are a marriage of soil and spirit, dirt and the divine. That is who you are. And in Jesus, in this person who, for Christians, we center our faith on, what we find is that he comes into the world and he's full of emotion. He's full of passion. He's not impassable. We find a Jesus who is angry. One of my favorite moments is when he says to his disciples, are you all still so dull? Isn't that great? Do you just sometimes want permission to say that to other people? Like, are you still so dull? Do you not get it? You see Jesus who's angry and frustrated. You see a Jesus who's tired. You see a Jesus who goes to sleep on the boat and sleeps through a storm. When Carl and I, we hadn't been married very long, um, and I'm a pretty deep sleeper at that point in my life. And one night, Carla wakes me up and she says, hey, I think there's a bad storm outside. And I I raise up and look out, and it looks like somebody has set a strobe light off outside. I mean, it's blinking lightning everywhere. And I was like, oh, it's just a storm. Let's go back to sleep. Wake up the next morning and there'd been like a tornado or a straight line winds or something. Like our biggest damage was our grill got destroyed that was outside. But like I get, like that's a Jesus I can get with, right? Like, oh, you sleep through storms. You get tired. You're exhausted. A Jesus who's joyful. A Jesus who's hopeful. And in the pages of scripture, we find a Jesus who's grieving. We find a Jesus who, who, on the eve of his arrest, is in a garden praying and weeping and longing for another path forward. And then, of course, there's one of the most beautiful moments in Scripture, which is the story of Lazarus, where Jesus' beloved Lazarus has been dead four days, and Jesus shows up, and Lazarus' sisters come out to Jesus, and they're devastated and distraught, and they come to the tomb In the shortest verse in Scripture, it's actually more words than this in Greek, but we'll leave that for another time. Um, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. And you're like, whoa, 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 spoiler alert. Lazarus gets resurrected, and yet Jesus weeps. He knows where it's all going, and it's all going somewhere better. And yet Jesus in that moment, standing in front of that tomb, the stone in front of it, weeps. And so with all that in mind, like this, this God who feels and is moved into action, this Jesus who weeps and experiences actual human experience, just some thoughts about grief. I think sometimes we minimize other people's grief to avoid our own. Because if I don't minimize somebody else's grief, then maybe I'll have to start thinking about mine. If I see somebody else grieving well and processing their pain and experiencing Uh, some sort of healing, then perhaps I have to begin to look inward at what I'm sort of stuffing under the rug. I think that's what happens. I I think so much of what happens, so much of what we see in the world as being really negative that comes from Christians, I think a lot of it is projection. I think a lot of it is, is not dealing with our own stuff and pushing it out onto other people. Because if we can find a them to focus on, then I don't have to really focus on me very much. I don't think grief is a sign of spiritual lack. I actually think grief is a healthy response to suffering and pain and loss. If you're here and you've ever been made to feel ashamed that you've been sad, that you didn't just snap your fingers and get over it, that a loss left you with a wound and a scar and it wasn't something you could just move past, if you've ever been made to feel guilty that somehow there was a deficiency in your faith, like you didn't believe enough, you didn't do enough, 
It's just not true. It's just not true. I don't think anybody's going to say Jesus had a lack of faith. And yet Jesus wept. I actually think grieving is a pretty natural, healthy thing to do. We have lots of people in the world and in our country right now who are grieving. After this week, when this opinion from the Supreme Court came out that it seems like they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade, there are lots and lots of people grieving that they're not going to have access to legal, safe abortion care. And if you read that opinion really closely, you'll find out that there are lots of people scared that they're going to come after marriage equality next. And there are lots of people scared that marriage equality is just the beginning to get at voting rights. And it seems like that there's this movement in our country that if you're not a straight, white, cisgender male, then there is no space for you in this country. And in this room, I know some of you are grieving deeply. And in our country, people are grieving deeply. That grief is sacred and holy. Know that. When you're in the presence of someone grieving, you are on holy ground. The tears people shed in sorrow are sacred offerings. It is not a lack of faith. It is not a a void of spirituality. It is part of being human. And there's this tendency in us to just want to skip to the good part. Anybody ever feel that? Like, I just want to skip to the good part. I just want to skip to the good part. And the problem is, like, you can do that in books and movies, but life doesn't afford us that fast-forward feature. And the only way to get through it is to go through it. I love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. He says, brothers and sisters, siblings, is I think a better translation, siblings, we want you to know about people who have died so that you won't mourn like others who don't have any hope. You know what he says there? And when people quote this, they're like, see, you can't, be gr- you can't do that because you're grieving like people without. No, no. He assumes grief, y'all. I know you're going to grieve. I just want you to know you're not grieving hopelessly. There is a difference. There is a difference in grieving knowing that you have hope and then not grieving. One will stunt your growth as a human being. It will stunt your development. It will hurt you. It will harm you. It will, it will scar you emotionally in ways that actually grieving would bring healing to. He assumes mourning. Grief and faith aren't opposites. What I find in the scripture are people who have such a deep faith that they can grieve. They're grieving from a place of like, this is, this is safe to do. I can shake my fist at the heavens. I can demand God answer me. I can, I can do what I need to do because I know that I am safe to do it. Also, grief isn't a weakness. It's actually a strength. We, we have strength and weakness so backwards in our world. We think strength is somebody showing up with muscles and punching people. And yet what we find in Jesus is like this quiet strength that loves enemies and doesn't return evil for evil. We find a quiet strength. And it takes strength to go through your grief. It takes strength to lean in to the pain and to process it. Can we just say this too? Like, therapy is not a weakness. 
like, seeing a therapist is a deeply spiritual practice. And by therapist, I don't mean your pastor who hasn't been trained. Um, like, pe people ask me all the time, like, do you provide counseling? N no, I need it. I don't provide it. There's a difference. Um, and, uh, and often when I'm preparing to do weddings, like, do you do premarital counseling? Oh, no, no. Anything I tell you is descriptive, not prescriptive. You need to go see somebody who actually is trained to do such a thing. Can you help us with parenting? No. Go see somebody trained to do that. And I was, I was raised in a system where the pastor was, every, you know, was sort of the savior figure, and you do it all, and you counsel people, and you give them the... I can, I can listen to you. I can provide pastoral care for you. That's not therapy. Going to therapy isn't a weakness. Taking care of yourself isn't a weakness. Getting rest, shedding the tears that need to be shed is not a weakness. It's actually a strength. It, it takes a strong person to face the struggle and the pain of life and, and to face it head on with help, with support, with all of the things. But it takes a strong human being to do that. And I've become convinced that grief is part of the work of resurrection. I, I, I just can't get away from this idea that the risen Christ still has scars. I mean, if I'm telling the story, I probably don't do that. Right? It's the risen Christ. It's Jesus 2.0, better than the original. And I remember growing up as a kid, it was always be about, we're going to go to heaven and we're going to get brand new bodies and they're going to be totally different and perfect. And the risen Christ is going, people, I still have scars. Because the things that actually happen to us in life leave wounds. And what we find in the risen Christ is not somebody who's ran away from the wounds, but somebody who has the scars, who has been through and gotten to the other side and experienced resurrection. One of the, the ending of the Bible, um, and, and actually in Revelation 21, when the writer John sort of has this vision of a new heaven and a new earth, I, I have to say this, it was before copyright, he's totally ripping off Isaiah. Uh, in the beginning, he would be getting in big trouble today if he were to do this. Um, but in Revelation 21, here's how John sort of envisions this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is here with humans. God will dwell with them, and they will be God's people. God will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you, you get that? John's envisioning this place of healing when everything is made right. And do you know what's still happening? There are still tears to be wiped away. It's not like there's grief and there's resurrection. There's grief and there's new reality. There's grief and there's happiness. It is the risen Jesus has scars. And when John, and by the way, this new heaven and new earth idea, do you know what I think that's about? Like, it's not that, like, there's, and there's a lot of destructive theology that's come out of this where it's like, God needs to destroy this world to do something good. And I think we're dealing with the language of metaphor. And I think here's what the writer's saying. We need a radical break from the way things are. We do not need the, the sort of the system we have now with tweaks. 
we need a new system. We, we, we don't need a system that's unjust and racist uh, and killing people economically. We don't need that tweet. We need a system that is just, where everybody has enough, that is equitable. And you can't tweak your way to that. And, and the writer's saying, we need, like, I envision a world where it's completely different than it is now. We need a radical break from the past. And even then, there are still tears that will have to be wiped away because grief doesn't just stop. If you've ever experienced a loss, you know this. That, that's one of the losses that sort of helped shape who I am today was losing my grandfather all the way back in 1993. And every year in July, when that date comes around, there's still a thing there. Right? There's still a thing there. I, have this, um, I had this ankle surgery because um, I heroically stole third base in a church softball game. <laughs> and I shattered my ankle in the process. And while I was, while I was waiting on the field for the ambulance to come take me off, uh, my foot facing the wrong direction, I made sure that I was safe, and I was. So I just wanted you to know that. But here's the point. I have a plate, and I have about nine screws in my ankle. And there are certain times, and I have a big scar that goes down right here, and there are certain times that scar, 10 years later, hurts. Like maybe it's the weather or something bumps into it, but when something hits it, the pain is like, oh, I forgot that that's a thing, right? That's something I carry with me. I think, I think our actual, like our soul scars are really similar, aren't they? Things bump into them, something happens, the weather shifts, and it feels like that wound is being opened up again. And the promise in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of Revelation is that there'll be somebody there wiping away those tears, but the tears still come. So the Bible, our tradition, all of it was born out of the experience of trauma. Do you know that? Like, like every page of the Bible has been touched by trauma. It was written, written by a group of people who had the boot of one successive empire after another on their necks. It was written by people who were continually just trying to survive. They were having to fight for their very existence with every single breath. That's who wrote the Bible. And, and sometimes when it comes to people like me, who have known nothing but privilege in their lives, I can sit and read the Bible and I can get some really terrible ideas from it and, and some really toxic ways of being in the world. But when you understand that everything in the Bible was written by people who had experienced trauma, then what you find is that, like, oh, this, you see them, right? They're responding to pain. They're responding to hurt. They're responding to the scars. They're responding. So any plastic, varnished version of the Christian tradition that is sort of just, like, happy and bright and shiny and, like, on, you know, like the stuff you see on TV, like, anything that's just, oh, well, we just need to, we just, look, Christians are happy all the time. Anybody been in a place where you had to be, like, that happy Christian all the time? Did your face hurt from smiling that much? Right? Any version of the Christian tradition that tells us that our doubts and questions, that our tears and our anger and our grief are somehow unfaithful, is not. It may be Christianity, but it is not the tradition of Jesus. The tradition of Jesus creates space for your grief. And yet, the grief we're invited into is what I would call a generative grief. And here's what I mean. It's grief that also does something. If you watch the news this week and you felt grief, grieve that. Grieve it well. 
And then know that there may be moments where you lace up your shoes and you hit the streets and you march. There may be moments where you're driving people to the polling station. There, there are moments of action coming. Generative grief, grief and resurrection. Grief that causes, one of the most beautiful things that I've, I ever see come out of tragedy is when somebody has gone through something so heartbreaking and yet in some way they feel their grief and they process it and then they do something in the world about it. Their grief doesn't cause them to shrink. Their grief actually causes them to expand. And they're walking around with scars. And everywhere they go, they're showing their scars. And yet they're also bringing new life in all sorts of beautiful ways in the world. I think we created this like, it's either grief or it's doing that. It's grief or it's resurrection. And I think what we're invited to is grief and resurrection. Grief, mourning, weeping, and then marching, demanding change, doing things in the world with really concrete actions that will transform the world for other human beings. Every human being will grieve, but maybe they don't have to grieve in the same ways we have. Every human being will grieve, but maybe mothers will no longer have to grieve losing their children to gun violence if we do something about it. Everybody has a reason to grieve, but maybe we can create less reasons to grieve. So if you're here today, and, and days like this are hard, and you feel like, well, but I'm at church, I'm supposed to feel a certain way. No, you're not. You're supposed to feel exactly how you feel. Your grief is welcome here. There's space for you. There's space for your sadness. If you're here and you're celebrating, there's space for that. But in this community, you will never be told, get over it. Move past it. You shouldn't be sad about that. In this community, your tears will be held as sacred. While we also invite one another to pursue resurrection. Are you with me? Let's pray.